just uh, repeat a couple of the verses. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So undoubtedly, the words of Jesus. The handwriting of John, maybe, but the words of Jesus. And as Paul said uh, earlier, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the letters to the first six churches of the seven churches in Asia. And just as a reminder, uh, if you could pop the first map up. Uh, just as a reminder, thanks Keith, it is the, the loop starting in Ephesus, finishing in Laodicea. But right next door to Laodicea, within an, uh, a very short distance, there are two other towns which do get mentioned, uh, Hierapolis and Colossae. I want to spend a little while first just saying something about Laodicea because I think it helps to understand some of the references in this passage. Um, the, the, there's quite a lot that refers directly to uh, the city and to things which have been going on there. The book of Revelation is not the first mention of Laodicea in the Bible. Uh, indeed, the letter to the church in Laodicea in Revelation is not the first letter to Laodicea in the Bible. And uh, as I said, we'll, we'll come back to where those other two towns are, but Col uh, Colossae was very close to Laodicea. And it seems probable that Paul actually never visited Laodicea himself, but that nonetheless he must have heard a number of reports about the church which concerned him very considerably. Uh, it, it seems probable that Epaphras was the, uh, the brother who brought the word, who brought uh, Jesus' message to the church originally. In Colossians 2, Paul says, again writing to the Colossians, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those believers in Laodicea and for all who, like yourselves, have never seen me face to face. And then in Colossians 4, we read, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. When this letter has been read among you, see that it is read in the church of the Laodiceans, and also that you in turn read my letter that is coming to you from Laodicea. So apparently Paul had already written another letter to the Laodiceans, which of course we don't have. And it's estimated that Paul's letter to the Colossians was written about 30 years before the Revelation. Laodicea was a strategic city, sited where three trade routes converged. And it was on a river. The, the, the river went through a valley at that point. And so uh, a lot of people had to go through Laodicea. And because of its strategic position, it was uh, a banking and financial center, great wealth, huge resources. It was also very famous for its clothing. 
there was a, a breed of black sheep which lived in the area and they produced a very soft, glossy wool uh, that was traded far and wide. And indeed, Roman citizens, uh, when they went to the, to the nearest fashion shop, would perhaps be looking for Laodicean wool uh, in their garments. But there was also a very well-known medical center in Laodicea where an ophthalmologist of the day uh, had developed an ointment for the treatment of eyes. We don't know what it was, we don't know what problem it was there for, but it had become very well known. So it, it was a, a, a city of considerable standing. And in 61 AD, an earthquake destroyed parts of the city, but when Rome offered funds for reconstruction, it was wealthy enough to snub Rome. At, at some time in the past, they'd asked Rome for some funds to build a temple to one of the emperors. Remember Carl last week was saying uh, about the, the emperor cult that, uh, that there was. Um, and Rome had turned down sending any funds to Laodicea on the grounds that Laodicea was insignificant. Well, Rome didn't know that much about Laodicea. Uh, and, and so by this time, they could snub Rome quite happily. Um, by the time Revelation was written, some 30 years later, the city had prospered more. And the first part of verse 17 in chapter 3 says, and remember this is Jesus saying to, uh, perhaps accusingly, to the, the Laodiceans, you say I'm rich, in other words, they're saying uh, that they were rich, uh, I have acquired much wealth and do not need a thing. And so they developed a, a sort of I'm all right Jack attitude. The point is that as a city, Laodicea had a very high opinion of itself and of its own capabilities, and that it didn't need help from outside. And so any problems it had were entirely of its own making, or perhaps more accurately, of its own allowing. Now, we don't know what proportion of the population of Laodicea were Christians at this time, but it's very evident from this letter that they too, the Christians too, had absorbed and were exhibiting this Laodicean attitude of we don't need anything else. We have all we need. It was a complacency, particularly, which had crept in, obviously to the city, but had crept into the Christians as well. And they had an unwarrantedly high opinion of themselves. But now we come to a however because luxurious though life was perhaps in uh, Laodicea and uh, having all that they needed, there was a however. And the however was one particular discomfort in living there. And that was that the water supply for the city came from some hot mineral springs some five miles away on an aqueduct. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it was tepid. And that was uh, not particularly helpful. 
Now, I mentioned the other two towns, um, after the map could go off, thank you, just very close to Laodicea, Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis had a source of hot water in the town, hot enough to be a spa town, and I believe that it still is a spa town, isn't it, David? Thank you. Um, Colossae, on the other hand, had a source of cold, clear, fresh water. So they both, neither of them had this problem uh, that, that uh, Laodicea had. I don't know whether you still can, but you used to be able to drink the water in Bath. Has anybody done so? A, a number have. You, can you still do it? I, I, thought, I thought perhaps health and safety might have banned it by now. It, it's pretty foul, uh, was my memory. And um, I think it was quite hot because it's so close to the source. But uh, my, my sort of vague memory is sulfurous and, and what I've got written here is that it sort of tastes of what you think bad eggs might taste of, judging from the smell. And this tepid sulfurous water then was what Laodicea had and it was nauseating to taste and smell and good for nothing. You can let it cool down, but it's still going to taste horrible. It's never going to become cold and fresh. Because hot water, really hot water, can be used for many sources. Clear, cold water is refreshing. So when Jesus says in verse 15 and 16, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I just want to pause briefly at this point uh, for a, a little digression because depending on various sources and what you look at, there is some debate about verses 15 and 16 as to whether what it's saying is that being hot is spiritually desirable and cold is uh, spiritually undesirable you can see that argument or whether uh, using the water analogy that cold water is as valuable because it is refreshing and thirst quenching and we're reminded perhaps of John 7 on the last and greatest day of the festival Jesus stood and said in a loud voice let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And to me, that speaks of being revived and restored and refreshed. And again, to me, it implies cold water. So I'm personally happy with the cold water being every bit as valuable as hot water. And comparing the physical properties of hot and cold water on the one hand and spirituality on the other hand, the whole comparison breaks down in places. But whichever view you take, the important point is that tepid is useless. And that is what the Laodicean church is. And so we've arrived, really, at this comparison that Jesus uses through John. And by using it, the Laodiceans should have totally got the point. 
they, they know what their water's like and being told that they're like their water should have rung a bell. It should have got a point. Uh, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In, interesting, it's I am about to spit you out, not I will. So it, it's a warning. It's not a positive I am going to, but I'm about to. There's a warning in there. And the second half of verse 17 Jesus says, but don't you realize that this is, um, uh, remember that they have this very high opinion of themselves, don't you realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? So they're getting very suddenly pulled up by Jesus and uh, told that they're actually the opposite of what they think about themselves. But there's still more in the letter to that, for this is Jesus taking each of the things the Laodiceans have pride in and turning it back on them. So they have pride in their banking and financial success, and yet Jesus says they're poor. They have pride in their clothing and famed worldwide for their clothing, and Jesus tells them they're naked. And they have this medical center with an ointment for the eyes that's been developed and Jesus tells them they're blind. What they need to see, of course, is that Jesus is talking about being spiritually poor, spiritually naked, and spiritually blind. And in a sense, perhaps, it was the spiritual blindness that almost needs to be dealt with first so that they can see their shortcomings. But they've got such a high opinion of themselves and, and everything else, their possessions and wealth, that actually the greatest impact perhaps comes by telling them first they're poor. In the letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. But then they are commended nonetheless for their hard work and perseverance. The Laodiceans seem to be sitting back in their utterly mistaken belief that uh, all they're doing is, is, is absolutely fine in their success and prosperity and that they're doing all that the Lord requires. And clearly, that's not so. The Lord's pointed out to them their problems. But now goes on in verse 18 to say that some of what they need to do to start to restore that first love in the Lord that all is not lost. And this is where perhaps the warning, I'm about to spit you out, the warning really takes place. All is not lost provided that they hear what the Lord is saying to them and act on it. And Jesus still is using the same images now to tell the Laodiceans the way forward to walking the way that God wants them to be going. And Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He wants them to have wealth, but spiritual wealth which comes from them. Pure refined gold in those days when you compared it to all the other precious metals which, uh, which they might have had. Purifying gold was so much more valuable 
than all the others. And that's the standard of spiritual wealth that the Laodiceans needed to be seeking. Pure spiritual gold from God. And Matthew 6 reminds us, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And he wants them to be clothed, but in robes of righteousness which come from him through the blood of Jesus. Revelation 7. After this I looked and saw a multitude too large to count from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them from his presence. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a fantastic verse. What greater riches than to be sitting by the throne of God. And the verse refers to other issues that, that we've come across in the letter to the Laodiceans. Streams of living water. And God will treat their eyes. And then finally, it is the eyes of the heart that need to be opened and need to be uh, opened with a spiritual clarity that comes from God. In Acts 26, Paul asks, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, the Lord replied. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Psalm 119 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And Paul to the Ephesians says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. They needed spiritual sight, spiritual clothing, spiritual riches. And so do we. We may read the letter of the Laodiceans as being a strong warning to them and an admonishment to change their ways, but we must remember that it's not only a letter to them, it's a letter to all the other six churches and it's a letter to us. It's a letter to the church of today. We have no record of whether the Laodiceans did in fact heed Jesus' warning and take the path to restoration. And it's approaching 2,000 years since this letter was written. And consequently, many non-Christians would perhaps look at the Bible and say, well, what on earth is the relevance of that today? But we have the advantage of having the Word of God with us. And 2 Timothy tells us, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped 
for every good work. So we know that that letter to the Laodicean church was written just as much for our guidance and our benefit and everything that you can say about what the Laodiceans needed, we need as well. It's written for the church universal, the church worldwide. It's written for individual churches today to read. But much more than the churches, the message is there for each of us as individuals. The Laodicean church was made up of individuals, just as Five Head Baptist Church is, and each church in the area. It would be very easy for uh, other churches both then to look at the, the Laodicean church or even now to look at other churches and fall into the trap of saying, oh, that's okay, we don't have the problems that the Laodiceans have. We don't have this problem of lukewarmness and complacency uh, and so on. The moment you say that, you fall into the trap of complacency, I fear. And we're in danger then of becoming tepid. I mentioned before about the church in Ephesus when Jesus said they'd forgotten their, or forsaken their first love. And we know that there had been uh, a number of problems, but at one time when they were first converted, they must have been zealous. But sadly, they've lost their zeal and their first love, and yet, presumably, they were calling themselves Christians. Does that sometimes sort of ring bells? Um, I, I won't go beyond that. Um, we've done a SWOT analysis of the church in the past. Uh, in particular, looked at the first two, strengths and weaknesses, uh, as a form of, form of self-analysis. And th th when you do a self-appraisal, trouble is you really must be honest. If there's something that we think as a church that we do quite well, it should never be by comparing with another church and say, oh, well, at least we do it better than them. Because that would be exactly the same problem as on an individual basis of looking round and saying, I thank you, Lord, that I am not as other men. As soon as you start comparing, what we should be doing is saying, how can we do it better? Complacency and lukewarm, uncommitted living on the one hand and claiming Christ's name on the other hand are incompatible. And it reminds one of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So just saying that you're a Christian is, is not enough. I've been reading a, a, a novel recently. How many have read any of the Shard Lake series of books? Um, I know one or two have. Matthew Shardlake was a lawyer in the realm in the reign of Henry VIII when it was extremely dangerous to uh, 
to, to say anything which went against the sort of current religious thinking. You're quite likely to finish up uh, being burnt at the stake. And at one point, a servant of the Queen, this is Catherine Parr, the last one, says to Matthew Shardlake, who's keep, trying to keep his head down, I know you are no man of religion, though you were once. You are like so many in these days, a Laodicean, one who dissembles on matters of faith and keeps quiet and safe. And to dissemble is to conceal or disguise one's true feelings or beliefs. And so though we may rarely use it nowadays, being a Laodicean has gone into our language, it's in the dictionary, as something of a term of disdain. But verse 19 reminds us that in spite of all the shortcomings of the Laodiceans, in spite of apparently having forsaken their first love, in spite of complacency and a sad lack of zeal about the Lord, nonetheless, Jesus still loves them. He explains that it's because of that love that he wants to correct them, to rebuke, to discipline them. He pleads with them to take seriously what he has written and to repent. And verse 19, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And we also always need to remember that the letter to the Laodiceans was written for our benefit too and that we can expect discipline, we can expect rebuke, and that if we get it, it's because Jesus loves us. And then we come to the familiar and much-loved verse 20. And Keith, if you could pop that up, please, just as a reminder. The verse, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice... Oh, it's not, oh, it's not terribly dark in here, that's the trouble. It is a very dark picture to start with, and it, it's Jesus standing uh, at the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them, and they with me. And of course, m most of us have seen in some way or another the Holman Hunt picture, the light of the world. There's the door, and Jesus with the, the lantern, as he describes himself, the light of the world. It's usually taken as being an illustration of Jesus knocking on the door of non-Christians being asked or waiting to be asked into their lives. And the feature normally pointed out, of course, is that the door doesn't have a handle on the outside, so it can only be opened from the inside. But there's much more to the picture than that. What you can't see terribly well is that the door is actually fairly well covered by weeds and brambles as well. And that there's fruit, discarded fruit, on the floor down there. And Holman Hunt's own description of some of the symbolism of this painting says, the closed door was the obstinately shut mind. The weeds, the encumbering of daily neglect. The accumula accumulated hindrance of sloth. And while the verse and the picture can certainly apply to someone who doesn't know Jesus, what we need to remember 
is that the verse comes in a letter written to the church in Laodicea. And it was squarely aimed, therefore, at the Laodiceans in a church who have known Jesus. And it's written to people who claim to be his followers. So we shouldn't just think of that as referring to people who don't know Christ. On the other side of the door, in verse 20, therefore, are believers who have perhaps lost their first love and who through complacency could be you or I. Could be any Christian who has become lukewarm through neglect. But the offer of redemption is there from him. Thanks, Keith. With repentance, all it requires is to hear his voice and open the door, to open our hearts and invite him in. And he will come in and he says, I will eat with you and you with me. The Greeks apparently had three different words for meals depending on when in the day they were eating. I suppose we do as well, actually. But the word used in Revelation 3.20 is the word used for the evening meal. It was the main meal of the day where people lingered, where they had fellowship, where they spent time together and got to know one another. And this is what Christ wants for us. He wants us to linger with him in his company, to experience deep fellowship with him, and for us to know his limitless and unconditional love. He wants us to come to know him. If you don't have that love, or if on thinking about yourself, you wonder how committed you really are and wonder if you are a bit complacent or lukewarm about your faith, then Jesus is there. He's at the door of your heart. And all you have to do is open it and ask him in.